Hey all, and welcome to Skeptic Hangout, the place where we sit back, relax, and chit-chat about intriguing and sometimes controversial topics through the lens of skepticism. With us today, we have Richard Gilliver from Skeptic Takeout and Laura McGee from Unapologetically Me. Richard Gill from the Yorkshire Atheist was unable to join us today, so prepare yourselves. Laura and Richard will be going off on some tangents. Why? Because today's topic is history. So grab your English tea or your crisp, clean coconut water and join us as we delve deep into the concept of delving deep into our past. This is episode 24, History. Okay. Hey. So how are you doing today, Mr. Richard? I am okay. I'm feeling, we, I think we need to keep ourselves on tracks because I don't know if a, a, a lot of the viewers know this, but we're quite good friends. And yes, and we're both chatty and talkative. <laughs> we're both really chatty. So we're, we're really having to keep ourselves in line. We haven't got Gil here to kind of keep us Bring in us line and around. keep us on track. Yeah, so. And the other thing is like, it's a topic that just happens to be a passion for both of us. Yeah. And, um, and I've been out of studying history for a while because I went into studying, you know, like, as you know, um, anthropology and getting into some other subjects and homeschooling. So history as a specific topic hasn't been something I've been actively studying in the recent, like maybe one or two years, but still a passion. So I think not only is it going to be excitingly um, potentially drab as we go on and on and on about what we have to say, but um, I'm a little worried that if we get into specific historical topics, I'll start getting like stuff wrong. So I'm thinking let's talk more about history and not so much about historical events. (laughs) Keep keep Laura on the up and up. (laughs) uh, Before we start, I just want to highlight that in last week's show, and misgendered our guest. I want to keep highlighting that because we need to normalize it. We need to highlight when we make mistakes. We need to all stand up and own them. And, you know, I did it live on, while we were recording the show. Our guest was very gracious. We need to normalize it. If you make the mistake, make the mistake, own up to it, move on. You know, let's get this normalized. Let's get it, it being okay in society to make a mistake acknowledge it and move on from it and the easiest way to stop making that mistake is to correct yourself on the point like what Richard did as soon as he realized it he cut in stopped like cut us off and said hey I need to make this correction right here um the more you can self-correct the easier it is um because you're reinforcing it in your own brain um I think a lot of people don't mind when people make that mistake but um like Rudy said last week they were saying well if I don't correct somebody, then they're never going to get it. So I understand when they call me she, and I, I, I don't, I don't have an emotional problem with it, but if I don't correct it, then they're going to keep getting that reinforced and um, it's going to be hard yeah. to make the change. Don't be offended if someone does correct you, if you make the mistake. Absolutely. It's all about normalizing it. It's what we should be doing. We're so uh, socially programmed to see genders as so binary and like identifying physical features 
as being the same as your gender. And it's just not, it's just, it's not something that we're, we're used to because this cultural change is happening so slowly. So I think that the more steam and the more that we stand up and, and use pronouns more flexibly and more openly, the more we challenge gender norms, I think the more easy it's going to be for future generations. Definitely. My kids don't even struggle with it, but yeah. So enough about gender and on to history. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) I was on the perspective a couple of weeks ago. Mm -mm. uh, You weren't. Were you? Oh my God. So yes. guys, go check and, them out on the perspective. <laughs> uh, I, it, I, the last call we took was a guy who was kind of denying that uh, things in his happened the way that they'd been reported to have happened. Uh, what was the basis of his argument? That someone else had made an argument that he found convincing. And it was really frustrating for me because when I was trying to push him, by saying, well, what are the specific points? What are your specific points? It just kept me referring to me to this third person. And you referred to you, that, you in the third person or he no, referred, he referred to, to the uh, other, another person. Yeah. So and so says this, and so and so teaches yeah. that. Yeah. And I was saying, I'm not talking to them, I'm talking to you. What is it you think about it? And he just kept saying, Well, what they say is this. And that was so frustrating because of course the greatest things about having these conversations is that you can sit down and really break down and get into the nitty gritty, but you can't do that if someone's deflecting. And I found that really, really frustrating. But it, it, the kind of gist of his argument was that they, it's always a they with conspiracy theories, <laughs> they have, uh, <laughs> have, have hidden the truth, true history from us. And, uh, all the buildings that we've got now that the telling us are like cathedrals and things, which are like nearly a thousand years old, some of them, right. uh, or over a thousand years old, some of them, they're, they're not really that old. They're newer than that. And we're just told that that old to hide the true history, which we never got down to what it was. But I found that was. fascinating. I found that fascinating. So, Considering we're talking about history, yeah, let let's delve a little bit into like weird history. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean by weird history, but I do want to touch on what you just said super quick because that God, there's so much there. We could probably spend the whole hour just on what you just said um, because it made me think of multiple angles that we could approach it. But the one that that strikes me the most is. Um, how do you determine what's history and what's not and like where, where you get your facts? And it's really intriguing to me that you have the historians and they can go back and check source documents and they can double check things, read accounts. And now granted, even from what I've learned in anthropology, um, researchers in the past have gotten things wrong. And so you can be, re- you can be reading um, like a peer reviewed article or something that was published years ago and it could be completely invalid, but it's still out there in academia. So I, I get that criticism. But you have a lot of access to information in source um, documents and, and you can go check for yourself. But then you have these like, hey, this is the real history. And here's the thing with like the, what are the lizard people called? And like, the, I mean, all these different, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, there's this, this secret past or this, um, I think there was one, one on YouTube where they referred to it as like sacred history, where it's like, oh, there, here's the real <laughs> history, right? Um, and it was just, 
bizarre. And so <coughs> that's my question, I guess. Yeah. It, that what you say about deflecting, that's my second point. But my question is like, where are the source documents for all that? Where's the research? Where's the ability to confirm it? Oh, well, it was written in this book. And Oh, well, if you look at these documents, um, they can also be interpreted this way. Okay, well, great. Let's talk about all the different possible interpretations and let's figure out contextually which one makes the most sense. But where are you getting your information, right? From this guy in the 70s who wrote a book while he was like high on LSD or or are you getting it from like real academic um, yeah. pursuits, you know? I, uh, um, the, the thing is even, I think it's one of those areas where if you're, uh, unsure of kind of the established consensus and if you're listening to these guys on YouTube or the Eric Von Danikens and things, I was thinking of him when you were talking I know you was so that's why you mentioned him. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we are uh, oh this episode's gonna be so much fun <laughs> When, when when you're talking, uh, when, when you've got those kinds of people, they yeah. kind of take the fact that studying history is, uh, it's there's a lot of it is taking a little bit from here and a little bit from there and comparing and assessing. And they take that as, as a bad thing. They see it as a weakness. And and they say, well, right. you know, it's you haven't got any solid evidence, so how do you know it's really true? But of course... It is solid evidence when you've got it's not I've, I have this argument with Christian apologists or, or Islamic apologists quite a lot, but mainly Christian ones when we're talking about early Christian texts. And they say they love they love to compare uh, Jesus to Alexander the Great. Now I've not done much study on Alexander the Great. <laughs> because so and I, the, the comparison is that there's more evidence that Jesus lived than there is evidence that yeah. Alexander the Great lived. Yeah. Just now, I don't know what. I don't know what the case about that is. So I always like just say, I'll tell, because I genuinely don't know. I've not looked into Alexander the Great. So what I tend to do is say, I'll tell you what, let's push that aside and let's compare Jesus to Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. Because Cleopatra like lived, I think she was, uh, it was about 30 years previous to Jesus when she died. So she's almost contemporary with Jesus. She's a little bit before him. She comes from a long line of the uh, Ptolemy rulers who were Greek descended, but Egyptian rulers. Uh, and, you know, you've got these, these sources about Jesus which don't appear until after he died. Uh, but with Cleopatra, you've got coins with a face on, contemporary to her. You've got busts she Busts, had made yeah. of herself. You've got yep. carvings on the sides of Egyptian temples that she had made to her. You've got all this contemporary evidence mm-hmm. as well as the later historical writings that you've got for Jesus. And there's just so much more. His- assessing history isn't just about taking, I think people think all historians do, pick up a couple of old documents, read them and make their mind up. But or or got- even oh. worse, they think that they pick up the old writings of somebody else. Like somebody else read the old <laughs> document and then they wrote a history. Like, like Christian apologists, um, they quote uh god what is his name the one who just happens to mention christians in his text as being a um, non-christian source that mentions jesus um god the historian hundreds of years ago, or thousands of years ago uh 
Well, uh, it, he was. You've caught me thinking oh now, and God. I should know this. I'm so embarrassed. I can't remember. Yeah, he's oh, he's a Jewish historian. Can't remember his name to that save one. my life. Everybody knows his and, name. Yeah, that and one. he was he was that one like like 200 years after Jesus or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, not that this is why I, I didn't think. want to do history on <laughs> that. I don't want to talk about history itself because dates and names and stuff get all jumbled yeah, yeah. when I'm not when it's not fresh in my head. But um. But a lot of people will will quote. It basically, and it, it it's not source documents. It's quoting the guy who was talking about uh, wrote uh, a history mentioning, uh, and there's a little bit of controversy surrounding the end of it when it comes to the bit about Jesus being crucified. But even if we just take that as legitimate, because it's not decided on whether it, it's a, a forgery or a later edition or not. But he wrote about uh, the Christians and. Who, who believed in the anointed uh, one. And of course, anointed, uh, it, they talked about the Christ, but Christ is just the Greek version of uh, the, anointed. The, the anointed one, uh, which applied to kings throughout the Old Testament and uh, Jewish history and stuff. So the, there's a lot of one-sided looking at it, but I don't really want to go down the Christian route. I want to talk about history in general. Uh, I know I brought Christianity up, so... Yeah, but what you were what, the point that you were trying to get at though um, is that they don't mention Christ as somebody that they lived beside or that they had experience with. It was the Christians well, believed that he was crucified. Yeah, but my point, my point actually was the larger point I was making is that history isn't just looking at old documents. Right, there's a lot of supporting evidence mm -hmm. uh, where you might have to, you know, even if you've got two historians who disagree with each other, the fact that they're disagreeing with each other. Is is a good sign that you know there there is the, at least a talking about the subject, which means it was being talked about, and it's not just someone sat in a shady room writing his own and decided what version the truth of was. <laughs> so that brings up a really good point because um, a lot of people see history as being so linear and cut and dry, and it's like, oh well, it's published in this book, therefore the historians have agreed that it's true. And um, one thing is that, um, and this is what I think is so beautiful about study in general including history is that it is so fluid like um we are so needy about having like what actually happened or what's the truth yeah. or what what is the actual determination that we are like um oh well these two are arguing about it so i'm gonna pick his truth or well they just don't know anything because they can't decide and um, so i'm gonna go over here and think about this because it's been proven and what what i think we all need to keep in mind with history um in general but also other subjects is that it's okay for it to be fluid and it's okay for yeah. us to not know and to yeah. not have exact answers i think that's a lot more honest and gives us a lot more um like a, a much broader look into our our past when we're able to look at it from multiple angles i think it makes Just it much more one. fun yeah well it's that so too it's yeah it, intriguing was the word i was trying to find it's a lot yeah. more intriguing so fun yeah when you have like oh we have x documents they say x things um like you talk about um, Plato's accounts and stuff, and it's like, well, how much of it is real? How much of it is allegory? How much are stories? Was did Plato even really exist? Well, why does there have to be a total final determination? How come we can't continue the discussion in that same curious sort of not jump to conclusions sort of route and just here's what was written and here's what we do and don't know about it and let's talk about it. And what does it the, mean the, for humanity? The fact is, whether Plato existed or not, or Alexander the Great existed or not, they've had an impact on history 
and and what well, especially the great philosophers, the the old Greek philosophers, they've had such an impact on mm. on thought, on science, on on everything. And that's another thing about history, the way that it's it really informs where we are now. Yeah, and it's it's so good to like to be able to draw that line. I know. We said you don't want to draw a distinct. This is the way things were, right? But just just to see how things have come along, and just to think about it about that we've mentioned on the show in the past, how the Islamic uh, scholars and philosophers of the tenth uh, century, tenth and eleventh centuries, did so much work. Oh yeah, towards cataloging like, medical and stuff. Yeah, yeah, mathematics, medicine. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Talk about a, a curious group of people who are willing to explore and ask questions and record things like it's stunning how much came out of that. Um, yeah. But yeah. And I, I do want to like preface what you were saying or go back and sort of um, justify what I was saying. I, I, I think that um, regardless of whether or not we can come to a final conclusion, I agree with you that like we can learn from our past. So even if an account isn't exactly true the way that it's written, what can we learn about human nature? And I think there's, there's multiple things. It's like, one is yeah. what, how can we not repeat the mistakes of the past? And we can move forward and improve as a species. But then the other thing is um, almost like a free pass. Like, Hey, we're just human. Like, yes, there's war and there's famine. Now there's always been war and famine. And yes. There's yeah. horrible people and there's good people and there's these struggles and there's people vying for political power, but there always has been since civilizations, like the, yeah. the earliest civilizations, um, when they were established, like that's when warfare was established. Right. Yeah. Um, so it, in a way it also like helps us to understand it's not about good and evil or sin or, um, are we better now than we were back then? Um, it's also understanding our nature. And I think that even <clears throat> if Alexander never existed, his story can tell us a lot about human nature. Yeah. And at one, I mean, when, when we, as in me and you, generally talk about history, mm. we generally are talking about kind of either biblical or religious history. That's certainly on this show. It's been largely the focus, but history goes back much further than that. Oh, and, you know, <laughs> when, when, when we're studying history, when we're looking at history, you know, we you're looking at it covers so many different hairs. Uh, uh, <laughs> I was thinking about woolly mammoths. Um, oh. <laughs> um, no, actually, I'll come on to that in a second. But uh, we, it, it bring it covers so many different areas. So it could, yeah. geology, geography, you know, all these different areas of study. Really, anthropology, evolution, yeah, anthropology, yeah, yeah. It, it's so covers so many areas and it's to be good at assessing history I think you need to take all those areas into account and you need to communicate across those areas it's not just a case of uh looking at uh as I say old books old scraps of paper what the historians wrote mm -hmm. there's a there's um one of my uh lecturers at university I wasn't sure if it was her who coined it but certainly uses it quite a lot as a case of material uh, Christianity and it's about the material traditions of studying history not just mm, studying yeah. the books but 
looking at objects, looking at yeah, the way objects ruins and yep, and art and yeah. Yeah, and all that informs things. It can tell you so much about things. And also so little. And that's one thing that we don't emphasize yeah. enough. Like we have to all be more academically, yeah. <laughs> we have to have more academic integrity because like there was, there was one thing I was teaching my kids and we were watching a, uh, like a, a video on YouTube about it. And the, it was like, um, oh, we were learning about myths, mythology and how we know about all the different myths and stuff. And so we were going through all the different myths and learning about them. We learned about archetypes and we learned about genres and what they all have. Like we, we covered them from so many different angles, but one thing was, um, there are certain myths out there that we've, we've created this, this sort of, um, uh, like dialogue of what happened. That's not the right word, but, um, narrative. There you go. We, we created this sort yeah. of narrative of what happened, but the only material evidence we have for that myth is like a relief and the relief has yeah. these pictures on it. And based on the pictures, here's what happened. And, oh, this guy went through the, the hero's journey and he did all this stuff and he conquered this beast and blah, blah, blah. And we are writing that myth for that civilization and for that um, yeah. culture based on a relief that, that, and we assume that these symbols <coughs> represent the same things that we think they represent. Yeah. And, um, and what's interesting about that, um, not to go on too long of a, of a, a tirade on this, but um, I was speaking to a, a paleontologist friend of mine who was talking about petroglyphs. And he was like, what a lot of people don't realize is the meaning behind the petroglyphs. So yeah. like you might have a, um, a, a buffalo, right? And it's got horns. And like the number of horns it has is like the, the distance to um, whatever. And I'm, I'm going to say this wrong. Like the, the symbology of it, I'm just pulling off the top of my head as an example. But it's like number of feet is the distance to the water. The number of horns is, is whether the, there's more animals or less or whatever. And so the they're giving directions if you see a, a circle yeah. with a dot in the middle of it um that represents like something along the way as you're walking along the path like stop here um i don't know but but he remembered like he, he walked this path where he like looked at the circle he learned how to read it and so he looked up this way and he goes up and he follows it and around the rock and sure enough he found a, a place that was an ancient campsite based on following the directions and it's like oh they were telling people yeah. where to go but we see a dot in a circle and we're like oh they worship the sun and we see buffalo and they're like oh yeah they're, <laughs> they're drawing pictures of their animal gods or whatever and they were literally giving directions for for um uh nomadic tribes to move between summer and winter through different yeah. areas and um so now you go back to that relief that i'm talking about we have no idea what the symbology of those things were and those people no so i think i think going back to and i don't want to stick on the kind of New Age, <laughs> New Age von Dannikens, and I'm oh. going to pick on him constantly. Uh, the, the, the He's an easy Eric target. Von, and that's why I'm abusing him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Eric von Dannikens of this world for too long. But that is what informs a lot of their bullshittery. The fact that they do just come along and see it and interpret it how they will. <laughs> I did hear something like um, he retranslated some ancient like Sanskrit words or something to to better fit like the actual translations that the historians have agreed upon is different from his translations and I don't know I just there's a lot of I have a lot of skepticism towards him Um, but I know know we've spoken on the show about before about ancient aliens (laughs) how they give the disclaimer I'm not going on around this time though I promise how they always give a disclaimer on the show about like what? i'm not saying it was <laughs> no well because uh, <laughs> what they tell virtually every episode is experts agree that this is the uh, x is the case 
But maybe there's another interpretation. And let's go down that route instead and just ignore what yes, the editor said. Yes, it's either it's either that or it's the I'm not I like Giorgio Sucolos. <laughs> that crazy fellow and the I'm not saying it was extraterrestrial. <laughs> but it could have been extraterrestrial. It's like, oh whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Right. But um no, but that just goes to show how how really complicated history can be, right? Like the fact that there can be yes. so many interpretations. And people kind of spin it the way they want to. Um, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm, I want to come back to the woolly mammoth because I was reading mm. an article yeah. uh, a couple of days ago, I think it was, about uh, the permafrost melting in Siberia. And they've just discovered a, a woolly, I think it was a woolly rhinoceros. And it's in such good state of preservation. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's. I think there's even some soft tissue there because it's been frozen solid yeah. for this it's it's amazing and i mean it, it's tragic that the permafrost is melting yeah but the insights that you know we can learn from even from these tragedies are so informative for us for for history yeah it, tell, it tells and there's two things about that and the quick one first is like how how it allows us to have a broader deeper more thorough understanding of our past but then they also, it, it teaches us to be a little bit humble, right? Like we write all these solid truths and then we discover a technology that allows us to test something or we uncover um, a dig site or something like that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we have to like reframe and rewrite history. And I guess that's that's something that, that really should humble us in and yeah. cause us to be more flexible. So if you're if you're reading, like, I don't know, Kids are taught that history is history. It's written in a history book, therefore it's done. Just like a math book. Math's not going to change, right? Grammar rules aren't going to change very much. And then like, it's just like that. History is not going to change, right? We need to stop teaching it that way and start seeing things as being more like evolving and developing. I think we need archaeologists to come out more and teach more history because archaeologists really do have a good grasp of, you know, they get so excited when something doesn't meet expectation. Because, and, and that's what they want. They want yeah. something which is going to challenge them. I was very lucky in, in school. Mm. And, uh, I mean, I was only around 10, 9, 10 years old. And we actually had an archaeologist as one of our teachers. And it, it, I learned so much from it. I spoke, I spoke a couple of weeks ago, actually, about uh, the dinosaurs when the Diplodocus mm-hmm. kind of got recategorized. And I think it was him who kind of uh, pushed that thing and... God, and that's like a whole ball rolling for me. Oh, yeah. And I've, or the fact that dinosaurs have feathers. That's a little bit big. <laughs> that wasn't, well, I don't think that was widely known. Uh, no, it not certainly for a long wasn't time. Pu- publicly known. It wasn't taught in schools and stuff when I was like nine or 10. No, I learned that like just in the last decade. Yeah. 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 But well, that's an example of like what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was Archaeopteryx who was who was found and kind of kicked that old ball rolling off the, the famous. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think there's, now last time I heard, and I could be wrong on this, because uh, it was, this was a couple of years ago, but I think they've been actually found seven variants of it, because there was a lot of controversy at first about the yeah. first Archaeopteryx that were found, because the, the, a lot of people were arguing that the feathers were actually from... I like think they were arguing that it was two fossils that had been pressed together 
So the dinosaur had kind of been pressed with a bird. So, <laughs> and, and that's right. There were, I, think, I think they have actually found seven different examples now of, of and going back a couple of years when I last read the article on it, uh, um, of Archaeopteryx. So it's kind of, it, it, it's coming into being an established thing now that dinos, uh, the birds are direct descendants of dinosaurs. dinosaurs. Not lizards, yeah. yeah. And that... Which is exciting. That, um... That brings me to God. I hate it when like you say something and I like I know what I want to say and then it's like whoosh, gone. Um, oh, like like changing our our um, concepts of dinosaurs. Um, nope, it's gone. Go ahead and press. Wing it. <laughs> Richard, when you we were talking him. about you were talking about dinosaurs and we were talking about history um, and how we need to rewrite it and stuff like that sometimes. Um, yeah. I think dinosaurs have done that quite a lot for us because there's always new discoveries coming along. Uh, I mean, uh, like I said, I've just mentioned Diplodocus. When I was at school, that was the biggest dinosaur. And that's like being way blown out of the water now. It is, I, I don't know what, the gig, is there one called Gigantosaurus? Yeah, like there was, it was Argentinosaurus. Argentinosaurus and I think oh, they that found was reclassified. bigger. Yeah or, yeah, or they reclassified it, but just massively huge. <laughs> um, yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me how creatures can get that big, but no, I um, think it was the oxygen, wasn't it? Something to do with the oxygen level, I think so. The That's the theory that I've heard. Was, yeah, I've heard that theory. Great. So, um, talking about changing, changing how you understand things, right? Um, and you were talking about the importance of, um, of paleontologists and archaeologists and stuff like that. Um, just as an example, like when I was studying anthropology and I did a study on the Paiute, which is um, a Native American tribe that lives throughout my area. Um, and it wasn't on the recommended list. So I knew that it would be like um, unique and something that wasn't well studied. It was the first time that the teacher had learned about it. So that was kind of exciting. Right. Um, but they actually migrated up um, about a thousand years ago. So not too, too long before Europeans came over to America. They migrated yeah. up from South America. So they are actually related to the Inca, like the Inca and they like they, they call it Incan Aztec or whatever, like where they have the hyphen, um, Azteca. Anyway, they're they're related to the Aztecs and um and they're they're a tribe based off of them and they know us by DNA, right? They've done DNA comparisons and they actually know what migration routes they took to get up. Yeah. Why that's so interesting is um, well, two reasons. One is we always assume that like, oh, the people that settled here came over from Europe and Russia like over the land yeah. bridge and they came down but there's a lot more evidence now that people actually came by boat um like they came they potentially may have come both ways but to make it all the way down to south america and then migrate all the way back up um it it's constantly rewriting and help helping us to re-understand the history of the americas and like our our migratory patterns and he's pushing the date further and further back like 10,000 years of oh, 7,000 years, 10,000 years, 20,000 years, 40,000 years. Right. And it's like, people have been here a long time. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, one thing I find really interesting about uh, the central and South America thing uh, is, I mean, I have always had this concept and I don't know whether this is just me being an idiot or whether kind of everybody has this kind of idea because quite a lot of it is overgrown now. We kind of, I've always had the kind of idea that you had this, like, you had these pyramids surrounded by maybe small towns and then just loads of jungle. Yeah, like tons of space a, and no, yeah. 
20 they have miles very away complex trade routes and yeah but they were huge and that's yeah. what i was going to point out the, tr- the trade route because yeah. uh, i watched a documentary a couple of years ago maybe not that long ago uh and it was actually talking about uh from uh the big what's the big pyramid the step pyramid called can you i don't know what, oh chichen itza or uh, that's the one chichen itza okay uh well apparently there was like a really major trade route north mm-hmm. from that and, yeah. and a massive port. And yeah. this has only just recently and- been like, I don't even know if it's if it's kind of a consensus opinion. I think there's still, certainly the documentary I watched, it was still kind of new. And they were saying that they, they suspected that there was this huge port and there'd been these massive trade routes and it was completely rewriting how what they understood. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, to think of um, South Americans as predominantly, like in the beginning, at least like seafarers and uh, fishermen and people were along the coast first. And yeah, what's really cool to me is uh, the obsidian trade routes because um, obsidian is, it's a rock, right? So it doesn't degrade. It doesn't break very easily. Even if you have a broken um, arrowhead or weapon or blade, you can still tell that it's an arrowhead or a weapon. Um, so you have obsidian for for history has a really good way of tracking um trade routes and movement of people and so you can see and it was interesting how they they discovered it was like okay every mine has its own little unique um oh, what do you call it like <coughs> their, their composition their their um chemical composition is slightly different so obsidian found here has a different composition than obsidian found over here and so they would find these big mines full of this certain kind of obsidian wow. and they they'd find these artifacts throughout South America and Central America and even up into North America um, that they can trace, oh, this culture started here, the trade went down this way, and then um, they could see where obsidian was traded for other things because they could see where like fishing or something else was popular here and there's a lot of evidence for that. And then they'd see the artifacts going up. Like, so they'd see these, but um, specifically um, obsidian with the arrowheads and the blades and stuff was interesting to me because they were able to tell exactly like where it came from, where it went, which areas had more of it in concentration. Wow. And like, just, I just thought it was really cool. That's amazing. That's something you might appreciate here. And like, this is going to bore our viewers to death, but since it's, it's the Richard <laughs> and Laura show. This yeah, week, it's all about us. So uh, <laughs> buckle up, the first people. time, <laughs> The first time I ever came across Obsidian Blades uh-huh. was reading a Forgotten Realms novel. No by, way. Was it Douglas Niles? Was it who wrote Dark Walker? Moonshay, I, I, I can't remember the, the guy's name. No that was kind of the first Dark Walker and Moonshay was the first Forgotten Realms novel, I think, or one of the first. Oh, and he, he, he also wrote a, a kind of a fantasy history set on the same planet, but uh-huh. a fantasy history, which was basically just a copy of the Mayans and the Europeans going across. <laughs> and, and, and that was Brilliant. the first time I'd heard of a, a lot of that kind of culture stuff. That's what first got me interested into all the kind of South American things. It was just a fantasy novel. That is awesome. That's so cool. I love when fantasy can like parallel reality so closely that it becomes relevant. Yeah. Um, it's like on the Forgotten Realm subject, which has nothing to do with history, people, but you're going to bear <laughs> with us. Um. I was talking to my my best friend the other day about about the uh, R.A. Salvatore books and how he uses um, the Dark Elves and Dritz specifically to address race. And so he yeah. takes really relevant cultural problems 
he writes it into his story, um, like racism and bigotry and stuff like that and genocide. And um, he discusses it using these, these fantasy plots and, but it's really deep, relevant stuff. Yeah. And, and that is, is, is a part of history. The, the fact that people have used, people have always used stories and songs and, and, and obviously this comes back to your kind of field of being an anthropologist where people have used that stuff to communicate stories and real world problems and address stuff like, in, yeah. in South Africa, there's a rich history of kind of uh, using uh, plays and music to kind of subvert the establishment. Yeah. Well, think about epics. Like they, they used to, they used to um, be ways of communicating these big archetypal human experiences in, in story form using these like big heroes, you know. Um, but really what it's doing is communicating the different struggles and what it's like to be human. You know, yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. interesting. It is, and and that's that's another another side of historical study which is sometimes overlooked the 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 human aspect of it and yeah. the human the you know that relaying into stories and I think that's interesting in in kind of my field because obviously you get a lot of these a lot of the stories in the Bibles a lot of the books of the Bible. They're not historical books. They are they are the the songs or the uh, what's the word I'm looking for uh, like a simile for something else, like fables uh, or or, or um, yeah, parable. Yeah, parable. That's the word I'm looking yeah. for. Uh, simile is the kind of Buddhist way of putting it. <laughs> um, yeah, the parables and and things and and you know th- there was a time when. The Bible was considered a history book. Yeah. And it was read, yeah. all the stories were read in it as, as a history. history book. Yeah. And it's so interesting that, you know, I often say, especially to kind of uh, atheists or people who are arguing against religious people, when they, because they as prone to taking the Bible out of context as the religious people are. Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah. you know, Sometimes I just find myself getting so frustrated when someone's trying to trying to say to a religious person, "You're you're giving a bad argument. Uh, the Bible is this, this, and this." And I'm just thinking to myself, "You've got that completely wrong. It is just a parable. It's not. It's not meant to be anything but a parable." And you're kind of reading so much into it. That's kind of why I like people like Bart Ehrman, um, whether or not like because I know that that people have their criticisms of him I actually I really respect him um I'm not one to even get I involved respect in a, him and I have a yeah. criticism of him so yeah <laughs> I mean me too like I'm I'm one of those people that I can I can actually do that right yeah. um, but but I'm not even getting into the argument of the history of Jesus but just the concept that like he takes the bible and puts it in historical context rather than using it as historical context and he's able to explain like um oh what is that he wrote one book um I think it was called like, um, it was about how Jesus became God. I can't remember the name of it, um, but it's, it's, um, yeah, I'll have to look it up and put it in the, in the show notes, but in the, in the intro to his book, he writes this account of this person, right? It's a, it's a historical account that we have like written down historically. And, um, it describes this person and the whole time you think that they're talking about Jesus and he's like, and this person's name was blah, 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 blah from this other region. And they were contemporary <laughs> with Jesus. And this was during a time when everybody was a Messiah. 
Right. And we, we tend to forget like history gets rewritten every generation over and over again. And it has to either be rediscovered or argued or whatever, but we tend to forget like contemporarily what was going on during that time. There was a lot of messiahs and not, not to criticize Christianity specifically, just to, to sort of praise Bart Ehrman in his way of taking these documents and putting them back into history looking what else we have and looking at the other evidence around it and how it all fits together and how things intertwine and relate who had exposure to what information and when what trade routes were there right what was likely communicated between different civilizations and um and you end up getting this completely different look at um kind of like what i was talking about with the with the relief right where it's like yeah. when, once you know the context it's like oh we don't know anything else about it you you have a different perspective right yeah one of the great things about Bart Ehrman is I saw him on I think I don't want to get this wrong I think it was the myth vision podcast Uh, I saw an interview with him on that and I I believe it was a a question from the chat which someone had asked him about slavery and it kind of just gave them the kind of straight down the line historical answer and I think the, the kind of onus of the question was for him to say well, yeah, slavery is this, that, and other in Bible, and kind of agree with the kind of attack against slavery in the Bible. And it was just so straight laced and like, well, we're, we're not quite sure. You know, <laughs> they were different from, and it was, it's, it's so good at everything I've seen, every, virtually every interview I've seen where things like that have come up. It's, it's always been straight down the line and honest. And, you know, that's what's so yeah. good about it. Well, yeah, yeah. I love that you said like the whole, oh, and by the way, the book I looked it up while you were talking is how Jesus became God. That's it's right. a super, super good book because he did historically, he started out as just Jesus and there was a lot of argument over whether or not. And so talking about history, it really does show how it's constantly evolving and how our, our opinions and, and views on it constantly change. Um, but how, what is seen as historical truth also constantly changes. So we yeah. have literally as a, as a, predominantly christian society we have a narrative that doesn't quite line up with the historical it's funny because on 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 the subject of and and don't want to like say stay on the jesus thing too long but i know we gotta walk away from bart ehrman after this (laughs) subject of jesus it's not so much even bart ehrman but the 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 thing is well it is bart ehrman (laughs) 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 he's he's like He's, he's, a, he's a teacher who teaches in seminary school. Is, uh, he teaches a lot of Christian people. And he doesn't try and deconvert them. He just teaches them the facts. And I I was reading, uh, I think it was on Amazon, a review of one of his books once. Mm-hmm. And somebody was uh, uh, criticizing him because they were saying, well, it doesn't bring, it's not bringing anything new to the table in with this book everybody knows what what he's talking about this is widespread knowledge and i think that was kind of his point <laughs> that amongst that amongst scholars and things yeah this is widely known stuff but to the general public it isn't well and and, and if it's widely known stuff then what's one more uh <laughs> voice in the matter right well the thing I, i've got two textbooks on the new testament i've got one by a christian guy called john Drake. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are academic textbooks. They're not kind of off the shelf, like light reading, like a right. lot of Bart and stuff is. 
Uh, and, and one of them is, uh, the other one is by Bart Ehrman. Two different, completely different kind of approaches to the mm -hmm. subject. And virtually carbon copies of each other for as far as the historical information goes. Right. Which just shows that the, the kind of consensus, consensus of opinion, it doesn't matter whether you're a believer or not, the facts remain the same. And when you've got so many kind of, and, and I'm not saying like that this is cut dried solid because there are like mysteries like the Q document, uh, right. which informed uh, Matthew and uh, Mark. Mm -hmm. Matthew and Luke. Oh, I don't I'm know. Gonna too I'm going to embarrass myself. Yeah, I'm not even going to. I'm not even going to try and correct that one because I don't know. But like, there's there's the idea that there's a, a source document that they both drew from yeah. because they have these parallels, but they're different themselves. That they must have yeah. both drawn from the same source. That's the Q document. Yeah. Yeah, that that's the Q document, and 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 that is it. And that was kind of that was one of these great things in history, in historical study, which you find in all fields of historical study, where when it was first put forward, it was put forward as kind of a placeholder because it looked like, uh, uh, it looked like that that's what the document was that this was, but they never actually found this document. This, and I don't even think that they need to. I think the whole idea is that there's some, some similarities and some differences and that there's some discrepancies there. And that um, we don't like we don't know what the original document said or why these specific things are drawn from it. Or if there even isn't a religion. Like I've heard the argument that one of them is the source document. The other one is taken from it. And then I've heard arguments for why that's not the case. And I'm not even going to try and rehash those arguments now. But I think that what's most important is the fact that um, that we have to look at what we do know about any historical document, not just the Bible, but like any historical document, you take what we do have and, and you try to interpolate based on um, what stuff you have around it, right? So when you're talking about the Q document, what they're saying is we don't have this source document, therefore we have these two documents and we have to sort of interpolate based on these discrepancies. And so it shows I mean, it doesn't just show that there's a problem with the Bible specifically. It shows that historical, <coughs> like pursuits of historical knowledge, are freaking difficult. Yeah. What well, um, what about uh, there seems to be, or there seems to have been, around two thousand five hundred, two thousand six hundred years ago, kind of uh, what would be called the Great Awakening. I don't want to sound good, all new age. <laughs> yeah. You're talking sort yeah. of like an enlightenment, but before the enlightenment, right? Like, yeah, like yeah. We're in, in ancient Greece and paralleled in India. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, or like where, where all these things sprung up and all of a sudden there were this kind of great push in thought and this these great minds that came along. And, and do you think, and I'm asking you specifically, um, do you think that uh, that has, has got something to do with, because I'm not entirely sure of the timeline on this, as, as when we stopped being kind of hunter-gatherers and started settling down, it gave us the opportunity. Yes, oh my gosh. And I'm glad that's where you were going with that because I wasn't sure, but I was hoping. So there is yeah, a lot of... I'll let you continue then. Yeah, yeah, because I know you're struggling. You'll finish my thought. <laughs> yeah, so there's a, there's a huge correlation, although, okay, so... One thing I'll throw out there, whether you're looking at it from a historical or archaeological or anthropological perspective, 
is that when, when you talk about the past, you it's really hard to determine cause and effect, right? It's more about correlations and links and stuff like that. So there's a link between, and it, I'd say, I'd say it's, it's a direct um, cause and effect, but that's just my own personal arrogance saying that um, between when we stopped being hunter gatherers and first became more agricultural uh, and pastoral. And then when we started these big civilizations, like larger cities, um, people were able to specialize. So whereas before it was like, you're, you're going to go out and spend so much of your day finding food and so much of your day making clothes and so much of your day caring for your, your children. And, and it's all partitioned and you're always busy. There just isn't downtime. Um, hunter gatherer is when, when you also start seeing like really rudimentary things like jewelry and stuff, which wasn't beforehand, but that's because once you hunt and gather your food and you're able to keep it in one spot, you're able to sit there for longer periods and you can do things like innovate jewelry, right? Yeah. Make more advanced weapons and things like that. Um, but yes, then we start having like specialized trades, right? And that's where you start but getting- Can I just intrude you? This is just yeah. a question. Um, yeah. I, again, I don't know. Wasn't it, there was certainly artwork going off while people were kind of wandering nomads, weren't they? Because yeah. they found antlers carved and things from like 50,000 years ago. Oh yeah. And like carved stones and, yeah. and all kinds of stuff like that. Like, um, rudimentary beads. Um, I mean, obviously we always talk about like when you talk about prehistoric history, you always talk about like <laughs> cave art and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I think art has been, um, like, I, I think if anyone wanted to link art specifically to civilization, as in like cities and, and more complex social structures, I would say that's, that's bullshit. Like art's been around for yeah. a lot longer than that. Um, if that's your question, but yeah, to get on with my incredibly long-winded answer, um, it does start eventually developing to where there are people who are able to support themselves monetarily or get support, like supported monetarily, um, while doing absolutely nothing but thinking, right? So people like, like Aristotle, Plato, like historians and scholars and stuff like that. Um, when you free up an individual to not have to seek out a food source they're going to go do something else. Right. (laughs) So, so yeah, that's, it's interesting. Um, but that's something that we discussed a lot when we were doing, um, the evolution, like the evolution of complexity of human social structures that was discussed a lot. Yeah. That, that's, yeah, I found that that's, that's one area, like when we were talking about prehistory and the dinosaurs and things earlier, that's one area that's, uh, it doesn't seem to be talked about a great deal outside kind of academic circles. The uh, the kind of the just coming into civilization, the settling down, kind of the Neolithic period where you know where religion proper mm-hmm. uh, and and warfare and all that. You know, when, when people yeah. started gathering in cities and then they obviously had resources to protect and things and, uh, you know, uh, they started killing each other for, <laughs> for resource rather than just right. for fun or sacrifice. Well, I would say first, first, wouldn't it be like they, people kill each other? I don't know what the order is, but I'm going to make it up, right? Like what I would think. First, they kill each other out of need for like um, like resources, but like territory protection, right? And then yeah. it becomes... Um, each other for actual um like no i want to build a civilization here and i want to own this land not so territory protection like hey we're moving through this area and now we see a threat we're gonna limit threat but we're gonna be nomadic and then warfare but then i think sacrifice i think that 
God, I don't want to be wrong here, but I think that came after all of that because you don't start, yeah, having having those those complex religious ideas until later. But I don't know. There could have been like hunter gatherers. No, that, that's, that, that's interesting because I I I've never ever ever even thought about that. Yeah, I don't know. So that was just my I, guess I, off I, of my head. I have to research. No, it. it's, it's yeah. that thing, this is a really like a interesting kind of route to look at because yeah. I, thinking about it. It makes, and this is just me in my own head now with no kind of professional thing <laughs> going off at all. Kind of like but what I just did, yeah. About it, <laughs> <laughs> it makes, it makes kind of no, not really much sense if you're hunter-gathering about and wandering about to kind of kill each other off because it's such a hard existence anyway. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of evidence that there was very little warfare when the bands were smaller. Um, and the evidence would be, uh, so what they would consider evidence for warfare, I'm sorry, I have to itch my eye because it's smoky here and there's ashes everywhere. Um, what they would consider evidence for warfare is when they can find bones that have been killed, like a, a person who's been killed, but you, they could see wounds inflicted that were from a weapon instead of from an animal. Yeah. So yes, there's a very good chance that there's a lot we don't know, but from what we can see, what we can gather, there's a lot less warfare or signs of warfare when the groups were smaller. And they kind of see it in indigenous tribes today when you have dry, tribes that are very, very separated and, and very small right. and very, very insular. There's less problems, but then you start having closer together tribes and they're competing or whatever, and you get more bickering. Um, but that you, you brought something up that I just, I have to touch on when you, you said something about religion and ancient history and stuff. Like we were talking about yeah. the evolution of trades, right? And people specializing yeah. in stuff. <laughs> What's really interesting to me is when you, when you track, track back in time, like through ancient history, the development of religions, from what we do know, it, you don't get like um, ruling gods until you get ruling people, right? So whereas before it was like spirits of the world and there may have even been creation stories, um, but a lot of it has to do with like ancestor worship and spirits and like the God of thunder and stuff like that. It's all very fractured and disorganized and there's no one like there's no structure to it um it's just a way of describing reality like you you almost can't even call it a religion except that there's explanations for things right yeah and then you start getting more complex civilizations and you start getting more complex religions and then you get these like ruling classes and then you get these ruling gods and so i thought that was really really interesting the correlation there um <laughs> like you you don't get um the one true God that created everything and the rules over all of us until you have like the one true King that, that's in charge of the whole town. Right. So it's just, it's really interesting. Yeah. Certainly in, in early kind of, uh, the early days of the Bible, shall we say for want of a, a better phrase, there were, it's, it's well known amongst kind of academics that it's, there was many gods God, God wasn't saying, you know, uh, you shall have no other gods before me because he was saying he was the only God. He was saying you shall have no gods before other gods before me because he was saying I am the best God. Yep, I'm the big bad guy on the block. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he was adapted from multiple different gods. And they can kind of show yeah. that historically. So what's interesting to me about about different types of history is how they will accept or reject certain things. So there's two things that you make me think of off the top of my head completely because of my worldview and my exposure but i'm sure there's other examples one is biblical history 
and how yeah. it, it only takes into account the whole Old Testament thing, but it doesn't take into account Jewish history. No. So a no. lot of Jewish people don't even like Jewish history shows that they were they were polytheistic. And now, yes, even common modern day Jews, I think, are now monotheistic. I think that they also deny that there's other gods, if I remember right. I don't want to speak for the Jewish religion because I don't know enough about it, but I think it's it's predominantly monotheistic. But historically, they can show where it was it was polytheistic, um, and that each tribe, each ruling tribe, had their um, ruling tribe. Each tribe had their ruling god or patron yeah. god or whatever. Um, and the other thing is like sort of like. Uh, and this will be interesting for us to talk about with you being on the other side of the pond, American history mm. and how it's written, where it's, it's not necessarily a lie, but it's not necessarily the truth. It's like spun in a certain way. It's really nationalized this, this narrative of here's our history. Let's be so proud of it. Oh, the, the revolution and how great everything was and all these American heroes who founded our nation and like, never mind that they raped people and killed Native Americans and stole land and kept slaves. But um, there's like this this narrative of this is what our no, on is. on that point. As, uh, I don't want to interrupt you mid floor. No, no, go on for that it. Point on that point of are you taught in kind of schools about the fact that you went along and kind of I say you it was I kind did of, personally <laughs> <laughs> I was there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you taught the? We can't be the friends kind of, by the way. <laughs> the, the early settlers. <laughs> Uh, it's the, so they came from over here. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, are you are you taught that the early settlers uh, kind of went in and did these horrific things to the indigenous peoples? You're not because no, this. Like, oh and God, I'm going to come up to a really interesting point. I'm going to let you finish, but I'm going to follow up with an interesting point. Okay. Go on. So, oh, oh, I thought you were going to get the interesting point first. No, no, I'm no, going to wait. Yeah. So. It really depends on the teacher and the class specifically. Obviously, in college, you're going to get a little bit more of a picture. And if you have a really good teacher, you're going to get a really critical picture. Um, I took a, a anthropology of Native Americans class. Um, and that was, it was literally history from a Native American perspective. And I learned a ton in that class that just, not even just historically, but like within the last, like present day, last few decades and then also going back to like I just learned so much from that perspective that I didn't even know was true um but no the the typical let's say elementary school child where you get like the, the foundation of your historical knowledge um oh you learn all about the pilgrims and how wonderful they were and they were escaping religious persecution and all this other stuff and they wanted freedom for people and you're taught about like Thanksgiving as being this coming together of Native Americans and I mean there is like bits of truth to the the thanksgiving story that we're taught but it's it's really not that close to historical um records so i mean it really puts a very positive spin like we were all buddy buddy with native americans and we traded with them and they helped us and we helped them and i mean um so by the time you get to middle school and high school you move on to more things like world history and sociology and economics and government and stuff. And you stop learning about that kind of stuff. So it kind of gets pushed under the rug. Um, A lot of stuff I didn't learn until like the last decade. Wow. Yeah. See, that's very interesting to me because if you go back to when I was kind of first learn about Native Americans school, which was, I was quite young, like maybe five or six, talking about the very early 80s. And at that time, we were, we were still regularly 
like on a weekly basis, I had reruns of the old black and white cowboy movies where the Indians were the bad guys and the, the cowboys were the good guys and stuff. But even then, when we were at school, even in the early 80s, we were taught that, you know, that was a skewed picture of history. And the, you know, the Native Americans, you know, had been kind of had the land plundered oh, and, yeah. and stuff like that. We were taught kind of from what, I'm, I'm hearing from you. We were taught a more correct version of American history. Yeah, definitely uh, more than, critical, more critical. But the, the interesting point I wanted to bring up yeah. is that we were taught fuck all about how England had gone and raided Ireland and Scotland. Oh, yeah. Oh, we were so you bring a nothing good point. About yeah. that whatsoever. Yeah. Nothing. I, I learned nothing about Irish history until middle of wow. secondary school see and in world and, history we would have been taught those kinds of things <laughs> and it, i mean each section of the world would have been like its own little blurb and it wasn't necessarily focused on so it's not so much that we focused on um english and irish relations and that whole history but we were certainly taught the, the overall um points of it but um what were you guys taught on like colonialism and stuff and like uh, specifically that's... british colonialism <laughs> 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 taboo question <laughs> no it's not a taboo question i'm just I'm just, just can't breathe and laugh at the same time due to this coronavirus uh, uh after effects i've got going off but um yeah not much we we, we had we we were still talking about the british empire we were told uh, from what i can remember there was kind of hints that it was a bit of an invasion but that's it that's it was literally, literally- it, we, we, we were still in the in the kind of phase then. And bear in mind, this was you've you've got to, and this is not an excuse for it because it's disgusting. But you've got to bear in mind this was like five or six, seven maybe years after uh, the Sex Pistols that had come out, and before then there was really no kind of mainstream mm-hmm. kind of voices against the monarchy. Uh, oh, interesting. Like that, they were, they were. If you if you spoke out against the monarchy, you were like a subvert, you know, like really bad. And then until punk came along and kind of cracked that egg open, cracked that egg open for kind of yeah. younger people who went out and rebelled against the the older generation and stuff. Interesting. That just wasn't a done thing. So when I this was very very close to that when I was in school, like in junior school. So we, you know, the British Empire was still a good thing. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd gone and conquered the world, but it was for the benefit of the world. And I have heard, <laughs> I mean, gosh, I'm going to go off on a tangent there where I didn't want to go, but there, there, if you're talking about progress as being a positive, um, all these things that we have done as humans historically have resulted in progress. So I don't know if it's a net good or net bad or what, but I can see where it, anything can kind of be spun into yeah but look where we turned out we have like tvs and like canned drinks that i don't have to worry about where i'm going to get my clean water you know um so on the back of thousands of dead people i know isn't that crazy and so progress i know (laughs) so sure we can spin anything in terms of like what was the positive outcome from it? even slavery and like the cotton trade and stuff like as atrocious as it was you can have um economists or or historians or sociologists talk about like yes but here's where it set up our 
our cultures to be where they are today. But like going back to the colonialism thing, um, it, it was very similar the way that we were taught it. Like it was kind of a good thing, but it was more like, because I, I don't think it was taught in terms of like, um, Britain is, is bad. We were more taught in terms of like, um, uh, yeah, like that, exp- like the expansion of the Western world and the educated world. We weren't even necessarily taught how educated the Eastern world was. Not that we were like purposely lied to about it, but we were always, it was a good thing that that colonialism happened. Right. Um, and like the falls of all those nations, it was almost presented. If I remember it right, as a kid, my impression was always that it was their fault, not, you know, like, Oh, Africa, the way it is now that's Africans fault, right. India, the way it is now, like any sort of like, um, economic crisis or whatever, like that's because of them. Right. And not even taking into account that when colonialism failed and people withdrew, they withdrew all the support and all the, you know, they, they kind of left things to like, let the chips fall where they may, you know what I'm saying? We just weren't, we weren't taught any critical aspects. of well, it. Uh, That's a, it's a, it's a great conversation to others. Uh, and it's especially the slavery one, because there's, there's no denying that it brought prosperity to the Western world. Right. What needs what needs to happen now, and I'm going to go out on a limb and put myself there in now, yeah. is that those people who suffered most from that needs to be repaid for that now. And the governments who were involved in that, all of the governments, because there's a lot of talk about like America kind of repaying uh, African Americans for the shit they went through. But I think all governments who were involved in it need to get together and really fucking give these people something back. Give them the opportunities. Give them money. Give them. It's never going to excuse it. No, no. But at least fucking acknowledge what they did for America. And, and, and try to make and Britain. And, it, yeah. But here's yeah. where I have to play the devil's advocate or where I get a little skeptical is like, that sounds fucking fantastic and that would be so good to get the the playing field evened out a little bit but how do you do that right so the going back to my my native american class right and studying the paiutes and stuff like that one thing that i learned in studying that tribe is that america is shitty with reparations and despite whatever the best intentions were it has been fucked up time after time after time and I don't think including more governments will necessarily make that better because now you have more voices and bureaucracy and arguments and disagreements and vying for, I want this, and I want that, right? And so my big question is, like as human beings and as governments, it's, it's great to want to say like, hey, this was screwed up in the past and we need to make amends. And I agree with you there. How do we actually do it where it actually benefits the people that actually need it? Right. I, I think that question, as and I'm not trying to sidestep it, uh, although I am sidestepping it, but <laughs> it. I think that question has to be down to the people in that community. I've got no right to speak for those people on how we do it. Those those people who were, whose ancestors were affected by that and who are now continually affected by that. Uh, 
by being underrepresented and, uh, you know, one of the largest groups in poverty, they're the people who need to make that decision. They're the people who need to turn around to the government and say, right, this is what we think. So, you know, when you talked about like the, the elusive, there's two problems with that. One is like the elusive they, who is they? So you say those people who? Well, I mean, like, is it, is it like an elected representative from, from multiple black communities or multiple native American communities? Is it chiefs? Is it like how, who qualifies if you're, if you're a black person in America, but you actually migrated from like Sweden, like 10 years ago, right. Do you get reparations for slavery? Right. Like, how do you qualify yeah. people? I, I, so I think who the they is, is complicated. But the other I've issue heard is- conversations on this, but I, I, I don't know enough to speak pretty much on it. I know uh, uh, I've heard Cynthia McDonald uh, speak on, on this before. And I don't know yeah, this exactly specific topic. Said, it would but- be so great to have her on a on a podcast later and go back to this topic. Like we should, in fact, yeah. write it down on our thing like reparations, um, because I not only think that it's necessary to admit our past and to make up for our past and to even the playing field and give everyone opportunities. I also recognize that as humans and as large civilizations, we're pretty fucked up. And to get that stuff to actually happen is difficult. Um, which brings me to my second point, which is like, where and how? Like governments are broke. Like, I don't know if you know about America, but we're like not rich. <laughs> we're- <laughs> We're in so many trillions of debt and since COVID and just handing people paychecks out of freaking nowhere, we're even more in debt. So, well, okay, that brings up a counterpoint, right? If they can give all of America this much money, how come you can't give a small percentage of the population more than that, but like, you know, like a little bit more focused. Yeah, they can can manage to manage to pay out when it suits them to pay out, but they can't manage right, when, to pay when out the, information uh, for somebody who, right, when the, uh, who's when really deserving of it. When the yeah. stock market requires it, then let's go ahead and do it. But um, yeah, no, it's I just, oh gosh. I, I think to, to kind of draw a line, because we don't represent that community or any of those communities. Uh, and I think to draw a line on it and move on, I think- And we, we can, can talk about doing a show down the road, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think we can safely say that they need that fucking thing to happen. <laughs> and so and, much and more that, than that. I mean, we I, I really do my opinion on it because there's more than just that. There's like the the housing, right? Yeah. Um, factoring um, segregation and stuff. And, and that's so part of the larger. Wild. That's part of that larger question, and yeah. that's why we need somebody on to talk about to it, who is informed it, right. and who, and who and does that sort of activism and is informed yeah. and, and knowledgeable and, and can speak on it. I yeah. like your idea of Cynthia. We should talk to her. Um, yeah. But anyway, so moving on. Um, the so to bring the audience back around and bring ourselves back around. The reason why we started talking about slavery is we were talking about sort of like the changing of history. I'd call that specific one more like whitewashing of history. But I would I would preface that only with it happens through all kinds of different cultures, um, regardless of race or color or ethnicity. Um, like you go to a specific culture and you're going to get their specific history. Right. And or their specific take on it. And you go to a specific religion and you're going to get their specific interpretation of their history or their past based on their own religion. So. Um, but what America does in terms of educating children on um, on American history is it's nothing new and it's nothing specifically American. Um, that is one thing that I think is really important to articulate. Um, and that's interesting. Like that, that brings me to my next potential subject, which is 
whose view of history, like when we say history, whose history, like how do we determine which history is the history? And do we stick with the ones that our culture says, here's your history, or do we look at all of them or none of them? Or like, what, what would you consider history versus cultural narrative? Uh, that's a very good question because I was actually just going to make that distinction myself that I think, yeah, I think there is a distinction between academic history mm-hmm. and cultural history. Yeah. What's, what's kind of popular in the culture things and they don't always match up. Uh, so yeah, that, one... that, Go ahead. that is a really interesting question. Um, how, how do we assess what is real history from a, an ap- academic point of view relies, I think, on weighing the evidence and looking at all the different types of evidence and seeing what is uh, most probably the case. Yeah, Whereas- based... I was going to say, just to, just to clarify what is most probably the case based on multiple sources, not just based on one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, whereas kind of cultural history is <laughs> a whole different ball game altogether. And we've kind of just been talking about this uh, with, but we can, I think bringing it forward to a more like recent uh kind of thing. So I wanted to bring it forward to kind of the 21st, 20th and 21st century anyway. And this seems to be a good opportunity to do it. The, if you have a look at kind of newspaper headlines and things, if, if you're assessing history via looking at newspaper headlines, uh, and I'm kind of drawn to the Brexit thing. Oh, that good. We've just gone yeah, through good example. Yeah. Is that you know, depending on on which side of the argument you were on, it's either the greatest thing since sliced bread or it's like the end of the world. Oh, right. <laughs> you know? And there's no middle ground. There's, yeah. there's, there's no, I mean, I, I consider myself kind of level-headed and impartial on most things. I, I took a side on that. And I don't know anybody who didn't. Uh, so then at that point, wouldn't it be, and this, this pertains to history too, wouldn't it be what you're considering facts and what you're considering important and what you're considering a pro and a con, right? Uh, yeah, I think. <laughs> like to give you an example. So bias. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. I think, I think the majority of people who are on the, I'm not going to say which side of the argument. On the opposite on, side of yours. <laughs> but I think the, the people who are on the other side of the argument exclusively and this is going to sound biased but this is gen this is my genuine opinion on the matter mm-hmm. i've not heard a good argument yeah i literally did not hear a good argument a convincing argument it, it to, to me it was kind of you know when we in our community talk quite a lot about religious people and how the you know we're not religious because we've not heard convincing arguments it right. is literally on the same, the same level as that every argument i heard for the other Sorry. from the other team yeah <laughs> was, uh, <laughs> and that was literally how it was seen in britain and and it's kind of been took over by coronavirus but that was how it was seen in britain it was literally that dividing that wow. it was like two teams going against each other it literally yeah, split families apart yeah that's kind uh, of how it seems when we read the news yeah <laughs> yeah it was and um 
I think uh, I thought I, I didn't hear a convincing argument. Not nothing that convinced me at all. Uh, even even people who were divided in the same kind of fields like farming, it, there were there were people who in that community were on different sides of the fence. Uh-huh. But when I'm trying not to give my position away because I don't want to politicize it as, uh, very, as much as possible, but uh, you know those who were on the opposite side of the fence to me in farming just seemed to be doing it from very selfish motivations, which benefited them and no one kind else. Of like, and that happens a lot. Like, um, and, and in some ways, it's not bad. It's not bad to represent your wants or your needs or what will benefit you. It becomes bad when you're talking about it harming other people, which um, depending on the arguments, that's often the case. Like you think about slavery, I mean, slavery, right? Um, Colonialism, right? Um, Sure, there was benefit, but at whose account, right? So that that makes decisions to me a little bit more cut and dry. But but I think you bring up a good point when you're talking about um, getting history from the news is we almost do the, the same thing with history, but the opposite, where it's like we read history like it is news, right? Um, yeah. so first you have like news itself. You don't always know exactly how accurate it is, but when you read it in a newspaper, it suddenly has more veracity. And that's, I think that's the same way we approach history books is because it's in a book, it has more veracity. Um, yeah. but the other thing that you made me think of is I think it just popped into my head while you were talking. Like, I wonder how they'll view Brexit like a hundred years in the future. Will it even be something worth mentioning in contrast to all the big scope of big history? Like it might seem like a big deal to us now, but from a historical perspective, is that something that historians are going to key in on? Or is it going to be like, yeah, they had this thing at this time and whatever, you know? It, or... It's funny, actually, because it's, uh, it's he, even now, now there's still ongoing arguments about it because of the whole pandemic thing. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the uh, negative effects that were possibly forecast for Brexit which are now with us, are being blamed on coronavirus. <laughs> so okay. is, 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 is it coronavirus that did it? This is the argument. Is it coronavirus that did it? Or is it Brexit that did it and coronavirus is a convenient excuse to kind of... Why is it that people always, look, people always look for an exact scapegoat? Like, why can't it be both? Or why can't it be more complex than that? Yeah. Like, that's, it's so ridiculous to me that people can't see complex systems what they are like (laughs) like if you think of i don't know a culture or society as like a car there's a lot of moving parts and it's like you have something um that happens to your car well sometimes you can say oh this is a result of that and sometimes you have like two or three different things that go wrong and you're like well which one caused what and which one happened first and are they independent like mechanical problems or if i had fixed this other one sooner would it have prevented this other one and Someone who's a really, really, really good mechanic can see how everything connects, everything works, and this yeah. caused that, and that that break and that could not possibly have affected this in any way or whatever. They know the complexities. So you talk about like, I don't know, economists or political scientists and stuff, and and maybe they can start getting a general idea because of how complicated it is of how multiple things affect things. The average person, it's like, oh, blame blame Corona, right? And Corona probably had a huge bit to do with it but what about this other thing over here and this other thing over here and this and that right and um so yeah it's really weird to me when people say like was it brexit or was it corona like i mean it was probably both right 
It's it's interesting how you how you mention uh, how will it be viewed in kind of a hundred years time because if yeah. you think about it, there seems to be a kind of and I don't know if it's a living memory thing that we know people who, who were kind of around. I certainly have a friend who's ninety three year old, <coughs> who, <coughs> although it was kind of maybe eleven or twelve during the Second World War was around when the Second World War was uh, going on, mm-hmm. um, and. We kind of, when you think back to the Second World War, it seems like kind of very vivid recent history, or even the First World War. Yeah, it, it's not it was, that far off. It, you seem, it seems to be recent history. But if you go just a little bit before that, not too much before that, to kind of the Boer War, then you start thinking, oh, that was ancient. <laughs> no, no one remembers the kind of Boer War. And I if it's, and this is an open question. I don't know the answer. I don't know if you know the answer. I wonder if it's a thing that certainly I uh, have known people who were alive in my mm. lifetime. I've known people who were alive in the First World War. Yeah. And maybe that's why it's so vivid. What do you think on that? My short answer is I don't know. But my my longer answer is I agree with you. I think that there's part of it has to do with the fact that people, and this is my guess, right? Like, honestly, I really don't know, but I would think that not just because people are still alive, but because the cultural narrative is still alive. So you start talking about yeah. World War One, yeah. that That's narrative. Is still alive. Yeah. So you think about yeah. like, the, I don't know anybody who was alive during the Revolutionary War, but here in America, that narrative is still very much alive. We have yeah. Fourth of July and we have how mm. we're taught about it in schools and we're not just taught about it in schools. We are thought about it in schools right <laughs> like it's a big freaking deal to know about that kind of stuff so the more and more we keep that narrative going um but there was like the oh just on nonprofits the other day when i was on it um we were, we were talking about um the fall of black wall street right i didn't even know about that until i was researching it for the nonprofits show and that was more recent history like within my parents lifetime um and just like a decade or so before I was born and I didn't even know about it because it's not a part of our cultural narrative and it's not a part of the conversation so I think that's what what keeps certain events like just going it's funny you should say that because I've learned so much about American history from watching the nonprofits, and uh I don't know how much I'm allowed to talk about this uh I was contacted (laughs) by because I'm going to be on the nonprofits uh, in on the when is it eighth of August? Awesome! Uh, so that's when you're recording it, right? Uh, no, that we're recording on the fifth. Oh, okay, it? so eighth is when it's going to air. Uh, eighth is the Sunday actually airs, yeah. Um, and the, uh, I don't want to give away who's going to be on it because I don't know how public knowledge this is, but the, and it changes the, as people. Yeah, the anchor uh, sent me uh, a kind of list of topics that they were going to put forward and talk about and asked me what I thought about them. And one of them that came up was, I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was, it's something to do with right-wing politics in America. And I just said to them, you know, I have no clue on that subject. I mean, I'd be, I'll, I'm happy to talk about it if that's what you want to talk about, but I have no clue then that would actually make you a very valuable now we're not see this is like blending history with politics because now you're bringing up a good point 
it is good to have that voice of curiosity, that voice of like, I don't know. Right. So you get onto to nonprofits and like, let's say we have a whole bunch of us on there, like a whole panel of people who think that they know what right wing politics is in America. And we all have our opinions on it. And some might be a little bit more extreme than others, either pro or against. Right. And some might be more middle of the road. And hey, here's here's why. Right. But now you have someone coming from the outside. You're going to offer a fresh perspective. And um, why that's good is you're you not knowing means that you can analyze what's being said from a neutral perspective and be like, yeah. like, especially because on average, um, a lot of like, oh, God, I, I almost don't want to. Yeah, I don't really want to out like, oh, the majority of people on our shows are this or that, you know, politically, because um, that's not my place to say but we do tend to fall on, on a certain end of the political spectrum. So we, we will tend to on average, bring a specific point of view to that conversation period. Right. Yeah. So I think having you on there would offer like a fresh, a fresh point of view and maybe get people thinking in a way that they hadn't thought or that it wouldn't, you wouldn't give them that opportunity if you weren't there representing that, that unique view. I just realized that, that, uh, with the recording of that show I'm on actually takes place the same day this show is airing. Yes. <laughs> it's so confusing <laughs> recording in advance. <laughs> okay, so let's throw in like a nice little commercial here. This Sunday, catch Richard Gilliver <laughs> on the nonprofits. <laughs> yeah, and, and while we're at it, the following Tuesday, I'm on the perspective. I might as well get that in as well. <laughs> While, while we're here doing the commercial stuff. Like, I and think, honestly, some, that... We've I think some honestly, kind of discussion group that goes off as well. Oh, what is it on Facebook? <laughs> Look us up on Linktree. <laughs> yeah, no, I yeah, think... We're doing such a good job without you, Gil. Yes. <laughs> now, your question should be, is Laura going to edit in an actual commercial little break thingy, or is she going to just let this run straight through without the music? <laughs> Depends on how I feel that day. but no um talking about um what what we were saying with you being on the nonprofits and not knowing um and bringing that fresh perspective um i like that not just in terms of talking about politics but in terms of talking about history like having what one thing that i love having kids and homeschooling them is the questions and the the um criticisms and critiques and and critical thinking that goes into well, why did they do this? And, and why was it that way? And um, why, why do we need to learn this stuff? <laughs> right? Which sounds like a frustrating question, but it's pretty dang valid. Why is it important to learn about the Revolutionary War? Right? Yeah, kids are amazing. My, uh, my, I don't know if it was my son or my daughter the other day asked me a question. And uh, I said, you know, well, you know, let's have a think about it. And they went, can't we just ask Google? <laughs> and I'm like, no, because, it, you know, just asking, just finding the answer isn't always the important thing. Sometimes we need to think about it and go into it and yeah. ask ourselves why the answer is the way the answer is. Ooh, yeah. And that, I mean, my kids are young, so it's like, it's not tremendously concerning, but I love kind of getting them to think like that, to go deeper instead of just like, let's just ask for the answer. No, think, let's, let's ask the question. So I'm very science- find the answer. Yeah, I, I get very sciencey in my approach with almost everything with the kids, um, even including language. But like the other day, well, okay, so by the other day, like maybe a year or so ago, um, I picked up um, 
pine cone and a sepal, like a, a piece of the pine tree. That's like the little thing that has the little things that fall off of it. And um, I was like, hey, what do you guys think that these things are? Right. Like, um, what is this? And they were all across the board. They're like a baby pine cone. Right. <laughs> and I was like, no, like you can look up in the tree and see what a baby pine cone looks like. It's just like a pine cone, but it's harder and smaller and it's like really yeah. tough and hard. And then it grows bigger and bigger. And then eventually it opens up. Right. No, this thing's different. It behaves differently. What is it? And so they got to learn. And I, before I gave them any answers or any clues, I made them each guess what they thought it was. And yeah. of the three kids, not a single one, even the teenager, um, got it right. And, um, and then I discussed the gender of plants, right? Like trees and flowers and stuff. They have the female part and the male part, right? Yeah. And the pine cone has the pine nut, which is the seed. And this sepal is like the little things that crush off of it. That's the male part. Like that's basically the sperm of the tree. And then they're like, ew, gross. So when all that yellow stuff is all over our house and our car and stuff, like that's like, it's basically <laughs> tree sperm, right? <laughs> but it was cool because like the, the whole point of that story, I don't that's know educated. I don't Listen know to why. the original show. <laughs> I don't know why tree that's sperm. the example that popped into my head. <laughs> but that says a lot about me, doesn't it? <laughs> no, but the, the point of that was that getting them to think about it first and make their own guesses and their own hypotheses. And then afterwards we could research it more. So they knew like, is mom telling the truth? Is she right? Is she wrong? Right. Um, but it's, it was funny. It was like, um, before just giving them an answer, like ask them what they think the answer is and, and get them acknowledging that their guesses could be wrong. If, if nothing else, you know? Yeah. Um, definitely right. I'm going to, cut it because yes, i was waiting for the 45 minute mark it hasn't i don't up. think we've got one no i think it must offer it differently with two people i guess uh, so because i'm like dude it's 3 30 and i thought i would be on by three so yeah <laughs> the thing is if if uh, let's face it if i don't stop it i won't stop you're it. not gonna stop it and no. the the way we interact we could have a five-hour show easily <laughs> Let's not do that. Let's not. We want to get more subscribers, not start losing subscribers. So, yeah, so thank you to our audience for putting up with me and Laura. Just yes, rambling. thank you, guys. Just catching up. <laughs> Basically, we've just been catching up. If you got some good knitting done or cross-stitch while we were, you're so welcome, by the way. <laughs> so, oh, last thoughts yeah. on history. Come on, before we cut it. Um, history last is th- dynamic. It's complicated. So, take everything with a grain of salt. Take everything with curiosity and not to say that something is not true, not to say that something is true, but don't be afraid to ask questions and look more into it and be curious about it. And don't let your prejudice interfere. Don't, if you, you know, we've talked about Bart Ehrman on this episode, we've talked about him before with, you know, uh, that New Testament scholarship is uh, something I'm getting really into. Um, And you don't, don't just go to the sources that you think will agree with you. Go out and read your, your Christian scholars. Most, most of my books on the New Testament or on Christianity are from Christians. They really, really are. Go and look at the alternative viewpoint, because if they're doing the job properly, it won't make one bit of difference as to what the conclusion is. But the, but the information in there might be good. Off. Yeah, don't be put off because the Christian or they haven't got the same view. And that's not just a, a Christian thing. It's not just a religion thing. All areas of history, no matter what your area of study is in history, 
don't only look at the sources which you think might favour your opinion. Go and look at those alternative sources. You might have your mind changed for the better by doing that. Even if you don't have an opinion, if you're going to take, like, let's say you're studying, like, Haitian history, right? You have no specific opinions or thoughts or beliefs about about Haiti, right? Um, Yeah, look at all the different types of histories out there and the different perspectives and cultural narratives, because somewhere in the middle is closer to the truth than just one of them. Um, But you'll also learn a lot more. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, thank you guys all for joining us. Um, I know that Richard already thanked you, but thank you from me as well. Um, and I hope to hear you guys on Facebook and have some conversations. Um, and not that you need the reminder, but I am Laura. I'm Richard. And this has been Skeptic Hangout. And until next time. Stay skeptical. I don't know what Richard's Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm supposed to stay curious. Let's do that again. So I say stay curious. You say. I don't know what it is. Oh, okay. my God. Just say. <laughs> Let's just go. Bye. <laughs> you know what? I'm not even going to cut this because this is what happens when Gil's not here. We fall apart. <laughs> so see you all we later. Love you. Thank you for <laughs> <Yeah>. watching. Bye. <laughs> Bye.